So we, um, if you're brand new, we have been in a year and some change journey in the book of Acts, and this is the last day of it. We are finishing up Acts. Um, most of it has been narrative. In fact, most of the Bible is narrative, which is why maybe some of this feels a little bit confusing. Uh, some of the details not really clear, but 43% of the Bible is narrative. Did you know that? Most of it is story, which makes it confusing. And if you're honest, you would recognize that I, I don't know everything in the scriptures. If you're honest, <laughs> it's confusing, it's chaotic at times. I like what Tim Keller says. He says the reason for our confusion about the Bible is that we usually read it as a series of disconnected stories, each with some moral of how we should live our lives. I love his bluntness here. It is not. <laughs> Rather, it's a single story telling us how the human race got into its present mess, how God through Jesus has come and will come to put things right. So it is inside this rubric of how we approach the scriptures. It starts to make sense then why the Spirit, through his human authors, wrote most of the Bible as story because we are story creatures. We are narrative animals. Neurobiologist Mark Turner, he said, story is the basic principle of the mind. Most of our experience, our knowledge, our thinking is organized as stories. I mean, when you think about that, when you think of a memory, how do you share that? As like little nuggets, propositional statements, or as a story? That's just how we make sense of the world. The mental scope of story is magnified by projection. One story helps us make sense of another. We just cannot help but ask the questions. Why are we here? Who are we? What is the purpose of life? What has gone wrong in our world? Is there any hope? Where are we heading? We just can't help but ask these. Why? Because we were made for story. We cannot function without some sort of story to make sense of reality. And we love it because we love to find ourselves in story. When you read a really good novel or you watch TV or whatever it is, you start to empathize with the characters. You're like, I am that person. We wanna feel what they feel, we just get enamored by it. And writers and filmmakers are making a lot of money off of you because they know that's true too. They use various techniques to get you hooked into a story, which is known as binge watching. <laughs> I actually found this, um, this picture of binge watching. I don't know if you can really see this, but 70% of you, if you're between the age of 18 to 29, I'm not, I'm way more mature now, but, um, so I'm all other TV watchers, but if you're between the age of 18 and 29, then you have, 76% of you have stayed up all night to watch a show. 51% of you watched an entire season within 24 hours, 45% of you canceled plans on people to watch a show. <laughs> This is bad. 42% of you watched the show while getting paid for it at work. <laughs> we are just enamored by it. And in fact, even with binge watching, it, it activates this part of our brain that gives us the reward functions, which is similar to addictive behavior. 
And so much so that we sacrifice things for the story and we just click next. A lot of that is success because of good writing, character development, captivating stories, but also those darn cliffhangers. It makes us just click next. We cannot stop. We've been sucked into the story and we want to know how it ends. We need closure. What is my point? That's what makes the Gospels and Acts so captivating. Not only are we reading biographies, we are being invited into the very story and then invited to carry out that story. Luke, who wrote Acts and Luke, he has brought us on a journey and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has laid out a captivating story for us. And all along, he's been inviting us into it to play a part of it. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you like actually like cliffhangers? Okay, so the rest of you are really gonna hate Acts. You're not gonna like the end of it. It doesn't really have an ending. Luke leaves us on a cliffhanger. There's not really closure for us, but it is a brilliant move as to why he's ended this book this way, and we'll talk about that here in a bit. For our time together, just for a few minutes, I wanna recap where we've been. So we are ending, again, final chapter of Acts, um, where we have been. Acts has been divided, or it is divided into five movements. I think I have a, yeah, I have a thing up here. So the first movement is Jesus has commissioned out his disciples. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will descend upon you. And then all throughout that movement, we see just incredible works of the Spirit, which is then the second movement, Acts 2, where the church is born. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So that first part is Jerusalem, Acts 2 through 7. And then we move into Judea and Samaria, which is Acts 8 and 12. The gospel isn't just for the people of God, but it's for the enemies, their enemies, who they saw the Samaritans as like, we hate those people. But the gospel is doing unbelievable things among them, and that's 8 through 12. And then we see into Gentile territory, which would have been unheard of. The Jews just couldn't fathom that God actually loved them too. But then we see Paul taking the gospel and going out into Gentile territory, which is 13 through 20. And this final movement here, which is where we close today, is his journey from Jerusalem to Rome. So there's been some main themes that have been developing um, out of this, what we have covered. We've seen the gospel spill out to the ends of the earth. We've seen the glory of God come down into the temple, the holy and the fire and the wind and all that, if you remember that. We saw how follower of Jesus, now you, 1 Corinthians 6, are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit descending on all people. We saw how to live on mission effectively, how to count the cost to apprenticeship to Jesus, how to go back into your past, oof, to live freely in your present, what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. And today we finish Acts and Paul makes it to Rome. Where we were last week, he was on a boat. He got shipwrecked. He got bit by a snake. He made it. 
And here he is in Rome, which is where we pick up on verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem. I was handed over to the Romans. They examined me and they wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So what Paul, um, what's going on with him, he's under house arrest in Rome. What's really interesting is that he is under watch by the imperial guard. So this is like Caesar's posse. Caesar's very guards are keeping watch of this guy, which means he has access to the most powerful man on earth. He is literally in the house of Caesar, under guard, and he has access now to Caesar. And what we see here, Paul, as he's done with all other cities that he's been to in the past, he starts with the Jews. So he's invited the Jews over to his house. Verse 21, they replied, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of our people have come from there and have reported or said anything about you. But we want to hear what your views are, Paul. We know there's a lot of people talking bad about this sect. They've arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. This is so fascinating. Like He is drawing so many people to his house here. And then he witnessed to them from morning till evening. That's stamina right there. Explaining about the kingdom of God. From the law of Moses to the prophets, he tried to persuade them. Some were convinced, but others would not believe. So in Pauline fashion, he goes through the Hebrew scriptures. That's the idiom there. The law of Moses and the prophets are like the Old Testament, how we view that today. And so he just downloads on the Jews all day long. The scriptures are this unified story that leads to the risen and resurrected king of history, Jesus. And he unpacks for them how it all comes in and through Jesus. So turn and trust him. That's what he's doing. Verse 25, and they disagreed among themselves. Nothing new we've seen. And they began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seen, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might have seen the truth with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they well, listen, so Paul's pulling from prophecy here in Isaiah 6. This is specifically Isaiah's commission from Yahweh to be the mouthpiece to the Jews about their doom at the hands of the Babylonians unless they repent. 
They don't listen. They don't repent. But this is textbook Old Testament prophecy here because what was also true for Isaiah is also true here too. He's talking about these Jews on the other side of the resurrection as well who would not listen, who closed their ears, closed their eyes, and refused to follow their king. And so verse 29, after he said this, they left arguing vigorously among themselves, stirred the pot. For two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, And he taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And then you turn the page and you end up in the book of Romans. And that's the end. And we're just left wondering, what the heck happened to Paul? Did he make it? What about all the other apostles? Did the gospel make it to the ends of the earth as Jesus promised that it would? Is there a missing chapter? Like, this is the end? Luke has literally left us on a cliffhanger. We we don't know what's gonna happen next. It seems very ambiguous. You know, I think the reason why cliffhangers are so effective, I was looking up top movie cliffhangers, and of course this is subjective. You can debate with me if you want. I didn't know the other top two movies that were in the top four, but I do remember how I felt after Inception and after Avengers Infinity War. Both were jarring. For Inception, we're just left with the question, is Leo still dreaming? It looks like that top was starting to topple. I'm just being honest. Let it be so, Christopher Nolan. If you know, you know. But I would say probably the craziest cliffhanger for me was Infinity War because of the way that I felt when that happened. I saw that one in theaters. When Thanos wiped out half the world and when Spider-Man disappeared, (laughs) the entire theater, just silent. We weren't practicing silence and solitude. We just did not know how to process it. All we could offer was just nothing. Fitting just for the deadness that we all felt on the inside. Cliffhangers are so powerful because they elicit two responses. Number one, it forces the reader or the viewer to reflect then on the story that has been shared. You start going back over details. You start looking for connections, holes. But secondly, it starts creating longing in the reader or the viewer forcing them to turn the page or to have to wait a year for the next movie to come out or to click next if it's already there. Which is why I would argue Infinity War was the greatest cliffhanger because Endgame was the top grossing movie for a long time. We were just begging for some resolution. And that's what's brilliant about Acts here is we aren't given any. We are given no closure. Why does Luke end Acts so abruptly with no closure? Well, one, he's encouraging us to reflect on what we have read. And first of all, like I know what we've been doing as a church, we've been going through Acts very slowly, but that probably wasn't the norm 
for the early church. Again, Acts is a part of a two-part volume, Luke and Acts. And Acts would have been listened to, so somebody would have read the whole thing, and listened to after Luke would have been shared. So you've got in your mind both stories that are kind of all jumbled up, and you start going then over these stories. That's why Psalm 1 says to meditate on the scriptures. We're not just reading this thing to learn things. That's important, but to be also formed by these things, to find ourselves into these stories. So it's meant for reflection, but also it's to create anticipation and imagination in the reader with no real closure and no part three. That means Acts is still happening. We are invited into the story to play a part of the very active story that's being written. So to close out the book of Acts for the rest of our time together, I want to break down just two implications of what that then means. What the ending of Acts leaves us with. And number one, it's this. When the people of Jesus follow in the way of Jesus, their stories will begin to look like his. As I said earlier, the final chapter of Acts is a part of a final movement that Luke is portraying in Acts, which is chapters 21 through 28. We've seen Paul's imprisonment, trials, journey to Rome, and in this section, we get a lot of really interesting parallels between Jesus and Paul, almost mirror stories. This is known as literary parallel, parallelism. That's a mouthpiece or mouthful. <laughs> anyway, design patterns, we'll just call it that. So this is not an abnormal literary technique in the Bible. It's used all over the place. Largely what this can be, this can be two or more clauses. So you might see two or more verses put together that parallel each other. But you also see it with stories as well how they relate to each other through poetic structure or details or wording that was used. All of it was incredibly intentional. And they are stories that actually happened. But the way that they are shared, the way that they are placed in the narrative is purposeful and poetic to make a point. So in adopting this technique, Luke's larger point he's making is this. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories start to look like his. Let me show you a few just so that you see that I'm not making this up. I made a chart. This might be really hard to see. I did my best. There's a lot of parallels here. Um, what I would just say, I do have this chart in my transcript if you want to go back and look at it. But... Don't feel the urge, if you are a note taker, resist the urge to try and chot all this down. I just, I just want you to like listen to the scriptures that I'm about to read over you and just take it in. If you wanna snap a picture, you can. But to start out with, in like the journey narratives of both Jesus and for Paul, we start with this almost strange, like on a dime, they both are like, I need to get to Jerusalem. So in Luke 9, the travel narrative, as it's been coined, it starts with Jesus where he's out there in the wild and it just, he just shifts his ministry. We see Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, it says he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem, meaning like he turned towards Jerusalem. Same with Paul. He's out there planting churches, and then wham, Acts 19, 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. He even says in chapter 20, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's gonna happen to me there. For both Paul and Jesus, their disciples either had no idea why they were doing this or even tried to resist them from going. For Jesus in Luke 18, he says, um, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written by the prophets and the Son of Man will be fulfilled. I'll be delivered to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and on the third day, they will rise, he will rise again. And it says the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Did not understand why he had to do this. Same for Paul, Acts 21.4, when he, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them through the spirit, they resisted Paul to go to Jerusalem. In both journey narratives, from the moment that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and also Paul going to Jerusalem, there are seven references of going to Jerusalem, both for Jesus and for Paul. When Paul first decides uh, to go, I'm sorry, yeah, when Paul and Jesus both go to Jerusalem, they receive them gladly initially. So for Jesus in Luke 19, blessed is the one, so this is Palm Sunday, they're shouting and, and praising God, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, glory in the highest. When Paul comes to Jerusalem, it says when we arrived there, the brothers and the sisters received us warmly. And then when Paul says everything about what God had been doing, it says, and they gave glory to God. So both Jesus and Paul in Jerusalem to the glory of God, where do they both go immediately when they arrive? To the temple. The same phrase, entered into the temple, Luke 19, Acts 21. And both of them end up getting arrested and seized by a crowd. If you're like, okay, all this is just coincidence, this, one can't, this one's not. Paul and Jesus both go before the same type of trials. For Jesus, it was the Sanhedrin in Luke 22, and same for Paul. Jesus goes before Pilate twice, which is, he's a Roman governor. Paul goes before two Roman governors, and they both go before a Herod. While they're in Jerusalem, Jesus enters into a debate with the Sadducees, and Luke makes this note saying, and the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. When Paul's on trial before the Sanhedrin, he recognizes, oh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are in the room. And so he says, I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection. The Sadducees are like, there is no resurrection. So interesting. Both Jesus and Paul were seen as innocent and they should have been released. Pilate says to the crowd, Luke 23, Jesus should be released. King Agrippa says, Paul should be released. I find no fault in them. The crowd shouts about Jesus in Luke 23, take him away. The crowd also shouts about Paul in Acts 21, take him away. In both cases, a Roman centurion sees Jesus and Paul as righteous. They're painted in a positive light. For Jesus, the Roman centurion says, surely he is a righteous man. For Paul, it was the centurion Julius on the boat in Acts 23. 
who believed Paul treated him kindly. And if you just thought all of this was like coincidence, this one takes the cake. At Jesus's Passover meal, it says he took the bread, giving thanks, and he broke it. And the exact same phrase is used for Paul on the boat. And Paul took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. We having fun yet? What is Luke doing here? Why are all of these blatant comparisons with Jesus? We might even feel a little bit of like unease or tempted to say, chill, Luke. Paul is not Jesus. I mean, he's a cool dude, but he's not the uniter of heaven and earth. Here's how one scholar puts it by the name of Michael Golder. He said, Luke is writing this typological history. And what he means by that word typology is the technical sense, typos, the Greek word for pattern. So it's a pattern history. The life of Jesus provides the template for the life of the church. This is the Pauline doctrine of the body of Christ. Finding here a literary expression in the patterns and cycles of Luke's narrative. Christ is alive. And he's continuing in his own, or his, he's continuing his own life through his body that is through the church. Luke is not making a case for the equality of Paul to Jesus, but Jesus is continuing his life through his body that is through the church, which makes sense why Paul himself would make this statement in Colossians 1 that almost feels like blasphemy. He says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you that I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What? What is still lacking? Bro, what are you even saying right now? Let me be clear what this text is not saying. Paul is not saying that the cross was deficient in some way or that it's needing to be supplemented by something Paul or the apostles would supply. All over the place in the New Testament, it says Christ's death has once and for all secured eternal redemption. It is perfect. Even Jesus said it is finished. But what is he saying here? I like how John Piper puts it. He says Paul's sufferings, they were to complete Christ's afflictions, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in a sense, not that they're seen and known, and, or, or that because they are not seen and known and loved among the nations, therefore, they must be carried by you and me. That is how we complete or fill up what is lacking. He goes on to say what's lacking is not propitiation, like atonement, but presentation. God's answer to this lack is to call people of Christ, people like Paul, to make personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. We finished what they were designed for, a personal presentation. So in some sense, Paul is experiencing here the afflictions 
in the place of Jesus and the afflictions that Jesus otherwise would have endured if he were on earth. And the key to this concept is spiritual union. This is why when we read Acts 9, Jesus says, or it says, after falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus had already ascended to heaven. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, which is interesting because that means everything done to the body of Christ, the church, is being done to Jesus himself. The afflictions of Paul were the afflictions of Jesus. The latter suffered in and with the former because of spiritual union. This is why Jesus would say in John 15, this world will hate you. Why? Because of me. The continuation of the world's like animosity towards the Lord, you are the object in that place. (laughs) So Storms goes on to say the calling of Christians is to willfully and joyfully endure the suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, for the sake of Christ and his body, the church. In this way, we are seen to be his own. In this way, others then see him through us and his love for sinners. And in this way, Philippians 3, we share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Like how Tim Mackey puts it, when Paul is focused at what he's focusing on, though, is my participation in the kingdom, ruling as new humanity. This is the theme in Luke. The risen king is the suffering, crucified one. And so the way to rule like Jesus means self-denial and hardship. If I'm so closely joined to Jesus, my life is his life. Y'all, then that means your sufferings are his. So the point of all of these parallels and how Paul even thought of his own suffering is when the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories begin to look like his, which is beautiful, but it comes with a cost. Do you really want to follow him? Really? Because this is the life that's waiting for you. But it's so good. It's the life of Jesus himself, which makes total sense here as to why Luke just left Acts up in the air with no real closure because Acts is an un finished story. It is meant to invite us to now participate in the story that is actively being written. I love how Luke begins and ends Acts with this phrase, the kingdom of God. So in verse 31 of Acts 28, It creates this nice bookend. It says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. How did Luke start Acts? With the kingdom of God. 
It says, that, I think, I, yeah, I have this. I don't have it in my notes. But it says they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times and the dates, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So it starts and ends with the kingdom of God, which is huge, and that's major implications. Because now where we are in Acts 28 is we are on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And the kingdom of God has spread, as it said, from Jerusalem to now the edges of the empire, and now we're in the center of it. I like how Ben Witherington says, he says, the ending of the book of Acts makes it clear Luke's purpose was not to chronicle the life and death of Paul, but rather the rise and the spread of the gospel and the social and religious movement it gave birth to. Luke has provided a theological history that traces the spread of the good news from Jerusalem to Rome, from the eastern edge of the Roman Empire right into its very heart. So what Ben's saying there is he's saying that Acts ends not at the ends of the earth, but at the center of the earth. For Luke, it was critical and symbolic that the message reached the very heart of the empire to challenge seizure as a gateway to the ends of the earth because all highways led to Rome, but they also led out of it too. He goes on to say the open-endedness that a modern reader senses in the ending of Acts, it's intentional. He's not, again, he's not chronicling the life and times of Paul or any Christian leader. That story would have had a conclusion. But he's chronicling a phenomenon and a movement that was continuing and alive and well in his own day. For Luke, Paul's story is really about the unstoppable word of God, with no, which no obstacle or shipwreck or snake bite or Roman authority could hinder reaching the heart of the empire and the hearts of those who live there. So what is Luke saying here? He's saying, hey, dear reader, if you are reading this book, it is likely because you are a part of the movement. And so you find yourself now invited to continue the very story that has started here. The ends of the earth, that mission is still going. Acts did not end. Therefore, it is still happening. So what are you going to do to be a part of that? Father of Jesus, you are a part of the living continuation of the story of Acts. Luke is clearly intentional with his structure and his ending. He's challenging you to consider your own response. Will you find, do you find your own story in Jesus's story? And now participating in a story that's actively being written. Y'all, why does someone win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor? Surely it's not because they played an amazing lead. Why did they win that award? It's because they were really great at making the main actor great. You see that? As it is with us. When you trust Jesus... 
You, you are invited in. You give over your story and become a part of his story to make him look great. Our reality before Jesus is we were trusting ourselves for our deepest happiness, but now we know he is the access point of all that is reality. And he's worth following then with everything that you have. And so Paul, sitting under house arrest, waiting to die, would agree it was worth it. Yeah, it will cost you but it'll cost you so much more if you don't follow him. Which forces us to ask the question, are you a part of the story of Jesus? Or are you still the main actor, charting your own path, defining for yourself what's good and evil, what's best for your happiness? I promise you, it will cost you more not to follow him in this life and the life to come. But to say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil. It is a thousand tiny deaths that leads up to one massive life. It is not a futile grasping for control, but the freedom of yielding to love. It's saying to Jesus, wherever, whenever, and whatever, I'm yours. So if you're a part of the story, is it costing you anything to follow him? In your community, in the movement of Jesus, like in your own life, is it costing you something to follow him? I just would lovingly say, if it's not, you may not be following Jesus. And I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm just saying to personally take a look, if it is not costing you something, then you may be following a God that is cool with your sin, that sees you in charge and wants you to live a pretty non-threatening life to the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus would say, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, y'all, this is a promise. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. To follow after him, it will cost us. But in what you lose, paradoxically, you gain everything. What you were made for. Connection with God himself, created in him to do good works, as Ephesians 2 says, to work with him, to put the world to rights, to make more worshipers of Jesus. When your life becomes like Jesus and you enter into the story he is writing, it will certainly cost you something, maybe a career, maybe friends, maybe money. It might cost you your life. But what will you gain? what your heart was made for, him. Is that enough? I say it is. I'm convinced by it. So Acts is intentionally and structurally left open-ended to leave you, the reader, to respond. Are you a part of his story? And if so, is it costing you something to follow him? 
but I promise you it's worth it. So let's stand. I want to just invite you this week even. Just spend some time um, just in quiet before the Lord, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. I'll just ask him, "Am am I a part of this? Or am I still calling all the shots? Am I still the main actor here? And if you are a part of something or a part of this story, is it costing you something to follow him? Maybe it's your time, your talents, your treasure. Maybe it's a relationship. How is Jesus inviting you to participate in his story? So even now, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to, to bring to mind even just how do you want me to respond? And I'll continue in singing. Father, we have concluded, kind of. (laughs) Though the words of Acts maybe have been written and there's not been added anything to them, it's still happening. In the church that you purchased with your blood, you are refining her. Refining us to become more and more like your son, and you're inviting us in to participate in his sufferings. Oh, but the joy that is, Father, when it is hard, would you remind us that this is worth it? As the saints in Hebrews 11 are, are cheering us on. All of them, a great cloud of witnesses saying, yes, he's worth it. Keep going. And so, Father, would you draw us now even into the story that you are writing? Would we be faithful? Would we count the cost? Would you burn away in us that... (laughs) Stuff that does not need to be there. Would you, as we talked about even just a few weeks ago, would you draw to mind sin that we confess to get in the light? Speak now to us, Father. As we as a church step forward as a continuation of the very story. Because we were wired for story. 
You're made for it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.